It's September 1597. Off the southern tip of the Korean peninsula, the Admiral of the Navy Forces prepares to make his last stand against the might of Japan. The forces under his command were a pitiful sight. Thirteen ships hastily assembled and cobbled together, staffed by terrified young men, drafted into service with only a couple of weeks' notice. It had not always been this way. Only a few months earlier, the Admiral had stood at the head of one of the most formidable navies on the sea. Every sailor, cannonball, plank of wood, or grain of rice required for his crew he had personally secured. But the jealous whisperings of a court rival had been his undoing. His meticulously trained navy was laid in the hands of another man, an incompetent drunkard, Admiral Won Gyun, who in his first engagement had lost everything. 188 Korean ships and all their crew gone in the blink of an eye. The nation, now in complete turmoil, had hurriedly reinstated the man they had just disgraced. Rushed back to the front, the old commander took to the job and had done his best to prepare for the coming Armageddon. Now, as the 300-strong Japanese navy lined up at the Myongyang Strait, he addressed his quivering men. Since the situation has reached this extremity, we must resolve to die together. Why should we hesitate to repay the royal bounty with our glorious deaths? There is only one choice for us to make, victory or death. As he watched the waves lap against the keel of his flagship, he knew the coastal tide had begun to shift. It was now or never. The supreme commander gave the signal to his navigator, and his solitary ship lurched forward towards the gigantic Japanese armada. There was no way of knowing it now, but he had just commenced a battle that would be remembered as one of the most brilliant victories of all time, and will be studied by naval commanders 400 years later. You're listening to Anthology of Heroes, the podcast that explores the lives of national heroes from every country of the world and the legacy they left behind. And this is part one of the story of Admiral Yi Sun Sin, the Divine Wind. In the 16th century, the region we now call China was known as the Great Ming, and great was probably an apt way to describe it. Since its founding in 1368, the Empire of Ming ruled from Myanmar in the west all the way to the Pacific Ocean in the east. From the vast Mongolian steppe in the north to the swampy lowlands of Vietnam in the south. And this was to say nothing of its tributary states, vassals who were obliged to send support, money, or weapons at the emperor's request. These states could be found as far away as modern day Indonesia or Thailand. From his extravagant capital on the east coast of China, the emperor ruled over his 150 million odd subjects through a Chinese philosophical principle known as the Mandate of Heaven literally the will of the universe. You could say China was the sun and there were many planets that orbited it, soaking in its culture, innovations and lifestyle. If this were the case, no planet would be closer to the sun than Korea. Korea was, in many ways, little China. While there were many other tributaries, none enjoyed the privileges Korea did. The Korean kingdom, known as the Chosun Dynasty, was the most loyal vassal of the celestial kingdom, and China saw them as the most civilized, in other words, the most similar to them. Korean education held Chinese history and Chinese philosophy in high esteem. Their government was structured almost identically to China's, they followed the Chinese calendar, and they inherited their social norms and family values from China. 
But of course, this meant that any flaws in the Chinese system were inherited by Korea. And make no mistake, there were flaws, even if the Celestial Kingdom couldn't see them. The Ming Dynasty had come to power by seizing the throne from the Mongolian Yuan Dynasty. And with the return of a Chinese bloodline to the throne came a revival of a Chinese philosophy which came to be known as Neo-Confucianism. While I won't go into detail, if you were a young bloke starting his political life in China, you had better know the principles of this philosophy inside and out. The civil service examination was an exam like we have, but in Ming China, your result would follow you for the rest of your career, and the tenets of Neo-Confucianism were the bedrock of the paper. So far, this doesn't seem so bad, right? What's wrong with an exam to see who's the best candidate for government position? Well, nothing really, except if this was the only criteria for the position. You see, this exam became so important, so all-encompassing, that there was almost no room for any other skills. While there were revisions to include more practical skills in the examination, like archery, mathematics, and horse riding, the sheer volume of Confucian texts that needed to be memorized meant that the emphasis would always be around this. The exam was brutally difficult. A Chinese scholar in 1613 would state that a particular part of the examination known ominously as the Eight-Legged Essay was worse than a historical event where 460 scholars were buried alive. Damn, and I thought my exams were hard. At least they only had one leg, I think. If you were lucky enough to scrape through the examination without killing yourself, you might land yourself a cushy, well-paid government job. Maybe you could write out your days as a bureaucrat or a secretary. But if not, well, you might find yourself serving in the Chinese military. And this is where the core of the problem lay. A career in the military was seen as much less prestigious than one in government. And because of this, many officers were only semi-literate, with no knowledge in military strategy. Many had never even seen a battlefield or held a sword. Military titles were also often passed down from father to son, further degrading any semblance of merit to the title. In the past, China had gotten away with this because of the overwhelming size of their armies, or should I say, the perceived size of the armies. You see, with the lack of prestige in a military career came lousy wages. Many officers stationed in remote outposts had long since begun to rely on bribes from other soldiers who were eager to escape the military in search of a better life. And while the bribe money came in, the garrison commander may inflate the numbers of men under his command in order to gain extra supplies from the capital, which could be sold on the black market. This meant the records the Ming emperor had for the number of troops he could call upon in the event of war was unreliable at best and a complete mystery at worst. When a Mongol raid came knocking in the mid-1550s, for example, the government had trouble mustering 50,000 men when the garrison record stated there should be 107,000 men available. By the words of the Ming minister of war himself, their army was a, quote, undisciplined mob, end quote. But it wasn't just the army. Corruption on a similar vein had seeped into government administration. While a bureaucrat might be able to recite 100 different Confucian texts referencing honesty and integrity, if someone was waving a couple of dollar bills in front of his eyes to look the other way, well, theory versus practice, right? Samuel Hawley, a professor from Yonsei University in Seoul, who I've drawn heavily from in this episode, describes the situation comically stating, quote, the Ming government had become like a man in a circus who spins plates atop rods, 
immersed in the task of simply keeping the whole precarious setup from tumbling to the floor. End quote. And very soon, someone was about to come along and knock all the plates down. A line from Sung Su's famous The Art of War says, If you know the enemy and know yourself, you need not fear the result of a hundred battles. If you know yourself but not the enemy, for every victory gained, you will also suffer a defeat. If you know neither the enemy nor yourself, you will succumb in every battle. It could be said that China at this point knew neither themselves nor the enemy. But just over the sea, there was a man who knew both himself and his enemy. His name was Toyotomi Hideyoshi, the newly minted ruler of Japan. Despite its close proximity, Japanese society was very different to Chinese or Korean society. The island nation was technically a vassal of China, but going back to our planet analogy, if China was the sun, Japan would have been Pluto. Japan had long dropped the pretense of acknowledging the celestial kingdom as their overlord, and though this was definitely a diplomatic snub, China didn't really care. A quote from a Ming government at the time referred to the Japanese as barbaric dwarves, a race of people who knew nothing of civilized society and knew only how to make war against each other. And historically speaking, the second part of that sentence probably had some merit. The numerous petty kingdoms of Japan were known as daimyos, and for almost all of recent history, they had been at war with one another. But Toyotomi Hideyoshi was a cut above the others. He had taken over command of a very shaky, quote-unquote, unified Japan from his predecessor. Technically, he had usurped power, but, you know, potatoes, potatoes. Hideyoshi was the son of a peasant and was shrewd and cunning, not unlike a rat, which is ironic because that's what the previous emperor referred to him as, a bald-headed rat. An envoy who met him said that he had the tanned skin of a peasant with tiny, shrewd eyes that shined with promise and ambition. And the man was nothing if not ambitious. Once he seized power, he quickly set about consolidating it. He moved ambitious daimyos he couldn't fully trust across the country away from their power base. These were powerful men who needed to be dealt with carefully and respectfully, something which his predecessor did not understand. There was an instance where the previous ruler got drunk grabbed one of the daimyo, put him in a headlock, and played his bald head like a bongo drum. If I recall, Homer did something similar to Mr. Burns in an episode of The Simpsons. Anyway, there will be no instances of this going forward. Hideyoshi needed these men on his side, but at the same time he had to make sure they were a few degrees separated from their fiercely loyal army. So he craftily gifted many of them larger parcels of land across the other side of the country. The daimyo... While separated from their traditional home, were not about to complain about being gifted more prosperous land than they previously had. I mean, if someone forced you to move from a one-bedroom apartment to a four-bedroom house on the other side of the city, you'd probably be okay with it, right? With moves like this, as well as the occasional massacre for those who were too stubborn to submit, in next to no time, and for the first time in the nation's history, almost all of Japan was united under a single ruler. But Hideyoshi had a problem the warrior culture of the Japanese people. You see, unlike the Chinese elite who prioritised philosophy and civic duty, the elite of Japan were skilled commanders who favoured battlefield talent over bureaucratic skills. They probably couldn't recite too much Confucian theory. Hell, maybe some of them might not even know how to read. But get them on a battlefield and they would be in their element. 
Hard times built hard men. Japan had spent millennia honing their martial skills against one another. This was a culture steeped in military tradition. Now Hideyoshi had taken that option away. He had a nation of warriors, but no one to fight. And you know what they say about idle hands, right? Hideyoshi realized that if he didn't direct his weapon at something, it would very likely blow up in his face. So that's what he did. The Celestial Kingdom's prestige and huge manpower reserves may have intimidated others, but not the bald rat. He saw right through the facade. Over the years, he had watched pirates and Mongol warlords extort the Ming Kingdom for payment. If this nation struggled to deal with a threat as minor as this, what chance did they have against the might of unified Japan? Hideyoshi even conferred to his advisors, quote, To take by force this virgin of a country Ming will be as easy as from mountain to crush an egg, end quote. The ruler prior to Hideyoshi had taken Japan by storm with a weapon that might surprise you, guns. While muskets had been more and more commonplace on European battlefields since the 1400s, over in Asia this was not the case. The traditional warrior code of Japanese society regarded these weapons with derision and suspicion. A samurai wielded a katana, perhaps with a shorter dagger and, when required, a bow. This was the way of the warrior as it had always been. But Hideyoshi's precursor had blown away the way of the warrior, literally. Samurai discipline, swordsmanship and strength to use a bow took years to hone. The armor was expensive, the training was expensive, and the loss of a large group of soldiers was expensive. There must be an easier way, he thought. What about giving a bunch of peasants cheap guns and a few weeks training? And with that, the Ashigaru foot soldier was born. Hideyoshi would carry on the work of his predecessor. Under his rule, gun manufacturers went into overdrive, pumping out muskets and ammunition en masse. Though the katana and the traditional Japanese armor were still favored by the officers, the men on the ground were now exclusively riflemen. Upon seeing how quickly the states of Japan fell to this new weapon, Hideyoshi set his sights sky high. In his mind, the world was his oyster. He gathered his daimyo and told them of his plan to invade Korea, but it didn't stop there. After Korea fell, they would march into China itself and depose the emperor. And even after that, they would continue. Their mighty army would keep heading west, through Thailand, Myanmar, and into India. Soon, all of Asia would fall beneath the knees of the mighty Toyotomi Hideyoshi. As the sounds of cheering and the clink of sake cups rung out through the city of Kyoto, across the sea, a funeral procession moved solemnly through the streets of Asan, just south of the Korean capital of Seoul. It was not a large procession. The family were from a modest background, after all. The deceased man had not even passed the civil service exam. As the smells of incense and the sound of soft weeping snaked its way through the streets, one of the dead man's son blended into the crowd of relatives following behind. Though he cared deeply for his father, he did not cry. In Confucian ideals, the man was stoic, stable, and strong. This man was Yi Sun Sin, his name would one day be a household name all throughout the country. Yi Sun-sin's life had been a series of peaks and troughs up to this point. He, like his three other brothers, had been named after ancient Chinese kings, in his case King Shun, with his name translated literally to something like Yi, vassal of Shun. At the time of his father's funeral, he was around 38 years old, quite an advanced age for his social standing. As a young man, Yi never took the civil service exam and instead 
early in his life went into the military. It's not known if this was a personal preference or perhaps that his father was unable to pay the exam fee for all four of his sons. However it happened, Yi took to the military well. During the exam, he impressed the judges with his martial skills, but during the horse riding part, Yi fell from his mount and shattered his leg, putting him out of action for a few years. After his leg mended, he tried and passed the exam and was sent to the unruly northern borders of the country. He arrived in the lawless border region, a 31-year-old junior officer with no experience and the lowest possible rank in the military, but he quickly proved his worth. He was quick-thinking, intelligent, with an obvious knack for leadership. He was also quick to lead by example. Soon he began to rise to the top of the commands, but something always pulled him back down. Integrity. You see, when working within the military, and likewise within the government, being intelligent and driven would only get you so far. If you really wanted to get to the top, you had to kiss ass and play the game. In essence, you had to be willing to dirty your hands with corruption. This wasn't blatantly stealing from the treasury or lying directly to the king. It was much more subtle. A promotion for a senior officer's son here, or a bit of credit stealing here. Maybe there were some special privileges you should lay on a man from a noble family. Whatever the case, and however it came up, ye would have none of it. Regardless of whatever promotions or honours it cost him, he refused to muddy his name with cronyism, even if everyone else was doing it. And because everyone else was doing it, Yi made a lot of enemies. The men he served under, his colleagues, all knew he was a man that would not lie on their behalf. They knew that in battle, if they did not pull their weight, Yi's report to the government would certainly be highlighting it. And for men who had taken on these roles hoping to sit back and collect their paychecks, this was bad news. After a clever ambush of some rebel groups, Yi was promoted and sent to Seoul for military training but quickly alienated himself from his superiors by refusing their family relations any special treatment. He was then sent south and given his first naval command. There, he made enemies with both the governor and the navy commander, who wrote a scathing report about his conduct. After that, he was demoted. When the report was investigated from Seoul, Yi's impeccable service record and glowing reviews from his own soldiers completely exonerated him. But to save the high-profile governor the embarrassment of having to apologize to him, Yi was sent north to the borders where his career had begun. Despite his demotion, Yi once again delivered a decisive blow to the enemy tribes. There were congratulations and back-clapping all round, but when Yi was approached by a smiling senior officer who wanted to be included in his battle report, Yi flatly refused him. Why should he lie? The man had contributed nothing to the victory. After a firm no from Yi, the senior officer wrote his own report, stating that Yi had actually acted without authorization and that the raid was risky, foolish, and the victory due to sheer luck. For years, these kinds of political missteps would keep Yi out of high command. The man was brilliant, everyone knew it, but it didn't matter. By refusing to play any role in military cronyism, it seemed he would forever languish as a low-level officer. But one day in 1591, a letter arrived. It was from his childhood friend who had risen to a prominent position in the government. The letter was a reassignment with a hell of a promotion alongside it. Yi was commanded to head south, this time all the way to the coast. The government had heard rumours that a Japanese invasion was planned. Though few took the information seriously, the king felt it was better to be safe than sorry. If the Japanese were to invade, the Jiola province would be the first line of defence. Yi was to command its entire naval division. Officer Yi was now Admiral Yi. 
Waiting on a tax return? Hopefully it ends up in your hands. Fraudulent tax returns due to identity theft increased by 30% in 2023. If you're in a bind this tax season, LifeLock can help. Our U.S.-based restoration specialists are experts dedicated to helping solve your identity theft issues. And all LifeLock plans are backed by the Million Dollar Protection Package. So we'll reimburse you up to the limits of your plan if you lose money due to identity theft. Help protect your information this tax season with LifeLock. Save up to 25% your first year at LifeLock.com aware. The government's choice of Yi to take on this role says a lot about the unpreparedness of the state at the time. At this point, Yi had served in a single naval post during his lifetime, and that was nowhere near this appointment in terms of responsibility. Was there really no one better suited to take this role than this unknown, outspoken soldier from the North? Whatever the reason for the promotion, if the Korean government made a single correct decision in the entire course of the war, it was this one. As the seasons came and went, all across Korea, strange omens were said to have been sighted. A fox had somehow made its way up to the royal palace and was found up curled upon the king's throne. A river suddenly dried up and ceased to flow. A large flock of sparrows was sighted splitting into two groups before turning on each other, pecking the other birds to death. It seemed nature itself knew a disaster was coming. But in the capital of Seoul, there was very little sense of urgency. In the last few years, Toyotomi Hideyoshi had tried to make himself known to the Korean people and wanted to make his ambitions of empire clear. His message, blunt as it was, was simple. The people of Korea were to stand aside while Japanese troops marched through their country and into China. In a way, he wanted to use Korea as a highway to the main prize. If this was done, then, at least according to Hideyoshi, no harm would befall the people of Korea. But diplomacy was not as smooth and seamless as it is today. Back in these days, a delegate, that is, the person who was sent to speak on behalf of their sovereign, held enormous power. It was up to them to set the tone and, maybe for a message of this nature, soften the blow of impact it was meant to have. It was a role that required the representative to be linguistically gifted both in their own language and the one they were translating to, they needed to have a good understanding of foreign customs, and more than anything, they had to be loyal. As we will come to see through diplomatic blunders that seem like something out of a Monty Python sketch or a Three Stooges routine, these traits were not always present. The first delegate sent to Korea was an ex-general. The message he was supposed to be conveying was that the Koreans needed to send a tribute mission to Japan as a sign of obedience. Instead, the boorish, loud soldier had no time for Korean customs, laughed aloud when they demonstrated their swordsmanship to him and insulted the local magistrate, accusing him of never having seen a real battle. Predictably, he returned to Japan with nothing to show. Hideyoshi, who was not a man to be trifled with, was enraged and had him killed along with his whole family. Oof. After this event, the Koreans had their suspicions about Hideyoshi confirmed. The Japanese were a barbarous and crude people with no appreciation for the finer things, It would be a waste of time extending a hand of friendship to them. Another delegation was sent soon after. This time, the diplomat conducted himself well, and it was Hideyoshi himself who offended the Koreans. In a letter that started with, quote, When my mother conceived me, it was by a beam of sunlight that entered her bosom in a dream. End quote. Hmm. He then went on to aggressively lay out his plan for his empire, how Japan had fallen easily to him and China will too. The letter was rude and presumptive, but it did what it needed to. 
For the first time, it had alarmed the Koreans. The government now realised this unknown warlord may seriously be considering an invasion. The letter came with some gifts too, rather strange cheap-looking muskets. The Koreans had seen muskets before, but these were new and shaped like a dog's leg, which they derisively began to refer to them as dog-leg rifles or just dog-legs. The government agreed that they should send a delegation to Japan, but not to submit, more to just congratulate Hideyoshi on his new position and maybe do a bit of spying to see if this barbarian really posed a threat. The ambassadors soon arrived at Hideyoshi's newly renovated capital of Kyoto. Their experience was strange. The delegates sat down for what they assumed would be a feast, a show of hospitality to suit their status. Instead, a few bowls of rice were passed around, while all the Japanese guests, who were dressed in everyday clothes rather than dining clothes, chatted amongst themselves, ignoring the Koreans. The delegates sat there confused until their gracious host, Hideyoshi, finally appeared. He emerged suddenly and, like the other men, was not wearing dining clothes. He fawned over his one-year-old son and spent the time showing off the boy to the other guests. The child then peed on him, he burst out laughing, handed him back to the attendant and left. That was it. The Korean delegates left Japan confused and a bit insulted. Why had he even summoned them there in the first place? They returned to the Korean mainland telling more tales about the uncivilized nature of their neighbor. The ambassadors stated that they disliked everything about Hideyoshi and reiterated Korea had nothing to gain from a relationship with him. But to Hideyoshi, there was no confusion. To him, the Koreans had come as vassals. They had arrived as court to declare their servitude to his newly forming empire. They were not his equals, and they were definitely not owed any sort of feast. I mean, did these people not even read his note about conception from a ray of light out of his mum's bosom? But if he thought the delegates had left on a good note, he soon got a rude awakening in a letter from the Korean government, saying, quote, To invade another nation is an act of which men of culture and intellectual attainments should feel ashamed. We shall certainly not take up arms against the supreme nation, meaning China. The letter closed with this, quote, We should conclude this letter by saying that your proposed undertaking is the most reckless, imprudent, and daring of which we have ever heard, end quote. An impasse had been reached by the two nations. The clock was now ticking. While Hideyoshi was more than ready for war, Korea was absolutely not. The Korean army, if it could be called an army, was in bad shape. As with most Korean institutes, the military had inherited the Chinese model, warts and all. Many men that were listed on official papers in Seoul were dead, missing, or had never existed at all. With many names having been created by garrison commanders to secure more funding from the government. And for the soldiers that did exist, they had little combat experience and the tactics and weaponry they relied upon was virtually unchanged to what was being used 200 years ago. Compounding all of this was the policy to keep top generals away from their troops as much as possible. This was to reduce the risk of rebellions from generals who gained too much popularity with their troops. But the downside was that most generals knew none of their commanding officers or the terrain they were supposed to be operating in. The system assumed a general could come in in a few days or weeks before a major campaign and immediately gain the loyalty of thousands of men he now commanded. Obviously, this was a fantasy. Wrapping up this nice little disaster was the Korean government. Factionalism gripped the courts of power in Seoul. 
The political power had been loosely split between two groups called the Easterners and the Westerners. Though the original reason for splitting was a different interpretation of Confucian texts, it had now devolved into petty tribalism. If a Western minister suggested something, the Easterners would disagree. If an Eastern minister suggested the promotion of a general, the Westerners would block it. Sounds familiar? You bet it does. With war being a kind of hot topic, the two most high-ranking Korean generals reluctantly moved south for an inspection of the coastal defences and troops that they were supposed to be massing. Their efforts were lacklustre at best. A few forts and guard towers had been built, some food gathered and some men had been put on high alert, but nowhere near enough. Nevertheless, the two men returned to Seoul, and either through their own ignorance or the desire not to be placed on it under any scrutiny, they concluded that everything was satisfactory. When a courtier raised some concerns about the Japanese muskets he had heard about, the general absentmindedly responded that even if the Japanese did have these new weapons, they would not be able to aim them. As the government bickered about whether or not the invasion was coming, or Hideyoshi was all talk, down on the coast, Admiral Yi was taking no chances. By this point in time, Yi had been in command of about one-third of the Korean Navy for about a year. Though he had very little practical experience in naval warfare, since he was informed of his promotion, he had read every old book he could find relating to it. It's easy to imagine the stern-faced Admiral Yi poring over ancient texts by candlelight all through the hours of each morning. He learnt about the role currents, tides and wind played in naval engagements, how narrow deltas and straits could be used as a bottleneck, and the importance of regular repairs, maintenance and upgrades for the health of your fleet. But once he arrived at his new command post, the reality that confronted him was the polar opposite to everything he had just read. The men were undisciplined and lazy. They rarely followed orders and spent their time gambling and drinking instead of patrolling. They had very little military experience or knowledge of tactics and had very little interest in learning them. All this changed quickly. Yi was a stern man. As a strict disciplinarian, he doled out floggings for minor infractions and executions for major ones. But he wasn't cruel. After a hard day of training, he didn't disappear back into his private quarters with a pretty girl and a bottle of wine. He spoke with the men, observed what they needed, the condition of their weapons and their defences, and most of all, their ships. These two were in rotten condition. In total, there were around 50 ships under his authority. Not an insignificant number, but in their present state, the commander had concerns if they would even float. Full of rotten wood, old sails, and out-of-service cannons, the repair of these vessels would become his highest priority. The central government in Seoul were still reluctant to dedicate any serious money to a threat that many of them believed to be non-existent, so Yi sourced the building materials and labour himself from the countryside. A begrudging respect began to build up amongst the men for their new commander as their ships and coastal defences began to resemble a real military force. But, as Yi surveyed the defences, a nagging thought took him back to his studies on naval warfare. He recalled the descriptions of a certain vessel that the classics mentioned. Sitting low against the water, it was described as being covered in thick wood with spikes jutting out of the top, a dragon's head protruding from the front and bristling all over with cannons. It's a ship that today is synonymous with Admiral Yi, one that I'm sure any Korean listener will know instantly, the Kobuksan, the turtle ship. The turtle ship, despite popular opinion, was not created by Yi. It had been developed as a bit of a novelty about 200 years earlier to defend against pirates. But as the Korean military fell into apathy and innovation stifled, the curious ship had been forgotten except for a few mentions in the back pages of military documents. 
documents that hardly anyone read, except, of course, Admiral Yi. From Yi's own notes, there was not too much info to go on. He knew that the ship had to have a stronger hull to absorb heavy blasts and that it needed to sit low in the water so that the many cannons it had would be assured of a hit on the taller enemy vessels. But really, apart from that, the rest Yi seems to have pioneered himself. A common myth is that the turtle ship had a cast iron roof, but the amount of iron this would have required meant this was an impossibility for an admiral who was already struggling for materials. Another myth is that Yi had a whole fleet of these things, while in reality, most of you ever would have had under his command is five, probably three realistically. At this point in time though, he had just one built as an experiment to see how it would perform. We've got a picture of this very unique and very cool looking ship on our website and Instagram page. On the 23rd of December, time was up. A huge Japanese armada set off. Their destination, the seaport of Busan, Korea. The army aboard was one of the most elite on earth at the time, the final evolution of a culture that had dedicated itself to the art of war. The boats were filled with men who had survived and thrived in the unforgiving world of Japan's warring states. They were cunning, shrewd, and fiercely independent. Each army contingent was led by a fearsome samurai general. Hideyoshi had bound them together for a common purpose, but that didn't mean they had to like each other. Many had age-old grudges against the other. Some were Shinto warrior monks, others recently baptised Christians, who saw the venture as their own kind of crusade. Though they were one army, technically, each commander pursued his own agenda, and his troops would only take orders from him. If the wind were good, it would be a seven-hour trip from Japan to Korea. But if you were there to watch this elite fighting force piling onto the Japanese crafts, you'd probably notice how comparatively basic the boats were. The Japanese viewed naval warfare in a very different way to the Koreans. To them, the boat was only a method to commence real warfare. They were designed to ferry troops to a destination or into an enemy vessel for boarding. They were not battleships. Once they arrived, though, the first few days of the invasion were a disaster of almost comical proportions for the Koreans. With Yi in charge of about one-third of the Korean vessels, the other two-thirds were split between two bumbling numbskulls, Admiral Pak Hong and Admiral Won Gyun. Won Gyun was a social climber with little else going for him. Before, we talked about how an essential part of a government or military role was politicking, a kind of you-scratch-my-back-I-scratch-yours that Yi refused to participate in. Well, for Won Gyun, that was all there was to the role. Yi had 100% of his talents in leadership and military theory, and zero in politicking and bootlicking. Won Gyun was the opposite. He had friends in high places who were more than willing to overlook his lack of any real talent, because he was willing to kick them back a few favours now and again. As you can imagine, these two would not end up becoming friends. Pak Hong sighted the invasion force first, and was paralysed with fear. At first he tried to reason that it was just a large trading mission from another island, but as the ships grew closer and closer and numbers climbed, he realised to his horror that this was an invasion. He sent a number of panicked messages in every direction, begging for someone to tell him what he should do. Meanwhile his ship sat idle in port. No attempt was made to stop the Japanese landing on the shores. When he got no response, in an act of unabated cowardice, Pak Hong ordered all his ships burnt and fled north to the capital. So sure was he that Korea was doomed, he told almost no one that he was departing, leaving a bewildered garrison completely leaderless at one of the most key moments in Korea's history. As Admiral Yi sent out scouts to find out what was actually happening, 
a few Korean fishing ships began drifting back into the harbour that Won Gyun commanded. Skittish and in way over his head, Won panicked, assuming this was the Japanese navy, and following his brainless counterpart, he too ordered all his ships burnt. Over a hundred ships were reduced to four. With what was left of his dignity smouldering in the harbour, Won prepared to flee north and was only stopped when one of his subordinates reminded him how this act might look to his friends in the capital. Fearing for his reputation, the Admiral of Nothing, with four of his remaining ships, sat quietly and sent a request to Admiral Yi for assistance. In the first few days of the invasion, two-thirds of the Korean navy had been destroyed, with not a single shot fired from the Japanese. But first, a quick message from one of our friends of the show. Welcome to Hashtag History. I'm Rachel. And I'm Leah. And if you are a history nerd, or even if you are a history hater, this is the podcast for you. Even if history was your least favorite subject in school, we can guarantee you will like this podcast because we talk about all the things that your history textbooks did not. That's things like how Ted Kennedy drove his car off a bridge and was able to escape the car but left a woman inside to die. As the Japanese troops began to build their bridgehead, they would have been a fearsome sight. While all the foot soldiers looked similar, their samurai commanders that walked ashore had their own unique flair. Blackened armour tinted with red, horrific carved masks twisted into images of ghosts or beasts, helmets with enormous deer antlers. These men looked more demon than men, and to the Koreans they may as well have been. All across the southern peninsula, the underprepared citadels and towns fell like dominoes. Once they were all ashore, the Japanese army, its labourers and its camp followers totaled somewhere near a staggering 160,000. The unrelenting musket fire this horde of humanity brought down was nothing like Korea had seen before. Their dated tactics, weaponry and strategy was truly like bringing a knife to a gunfight. The butchery was methodical and deliberate. Once a man was killed, his nose was sliced off and pickled. A commander's skill was tied to how many noses he could gather. Originally, heads were gathered instead, but almost immediately became a logistical nightmare to try and truck so many heads back, let alone store them, so noses became the new commodity. This, of course, was ripe to abuse, as it was much more difficult to tell a woman or a child's nose from a man's, as opposed to a head. The Japanese proceeded north to Seoul at a blistering speed. The Korean government was in freefall. As one faction worked desperately to recruit men to send south, the other faction still denied the invasion was anything to worry about, and that soon the robbers, which had become the new nickname for the Japanese, would soon be outrun by their own supply line and give up. This was, of course, completely baseless, and throughout the war, various reports like this would further make the role of the central government more difficult. The king summoned one of his best generals they had, and promised him that upon his arrival in the capital, he would find a crack force of men to lead south, the best of the best. Instead, when he got there, there were 300 students, government bureaucrats, and anyone else who was around, with no military experience whatsoever. Leaving behind the majority of them, he headed south to the city of Suzan, and recruited whatever peasants he could find, thinking he would have at least a week to fortify the town. He didn't even get a day. When a desperate report arrived later that day stating that the invaders would soon be upon the city, he had the messenger killed as a liar. To the general, it was inconceivable that the enemy had marched all the way from the coast to this city, so close to the capital in such a short amount of time. 
He was right to be surprised. The Germans' invasion of Poland in World War II was only slightly faster than this, and they had cars. As the general's paltry forces were shredded by volley after volley of musket fire, reports flowed back to a gleeful Hideyoshi. Even he was surprised by the speed at which the country was falling. Thinking the invasion was almost complete, he stated that the conquest of Korea had been, quote, carried out as easily as dust is swept away with a broom, end quote. As frantic report after frantic report rolled into Seoul, the king was left with little option but to abandon the capital. Loaded haphazardly onto oxen carts were the ancient tablets that told the history of Korea, the most precious relics in the kingdom. Everything else was left behind. There was simply no time. Not knowing where they were going, they hurriedly fled the city. The wailing and booing of the capital citizens followed them as they left. To most citizens, the king's departure meant that the city was truly doomed, and once the royal guard had deserted, the citizens took to looting and burning everything. Beautiful ancient palaces with names like the Palace of Glorious Blessings and the Palace of Shining Happiness went up in smoke, alongside granaries, court buildings, and everything else. As the imperial capital was reduced to a smoking crater behind them, the royal entourage headed aimlessly north as fast as they could. Soon, a frightful storm began, and many court officials who were not used to walking, let alone trekking, began to lag behind. But there was no stopping. Soaking wet and petrified of ambush, the sorry-looking group pushed on. As the Japanese daimyos ravaged the countryside and made their way towards the capital, Admiral Won Gyun sent message after message to Admiral Yi, telling him to immediately send ships to reinforce his position. Ironically, he was now concerned that his position might be indefensible. Oh really? You burnt all your own ships and you think that might be the case? Okay. Yi waited a significant amount of time to act, a whole two and a half weeks. While this might seem slow, even neglectful, the Admiral now realised the entire defence of his country now rested on his shoulders. He wasn't going to hurl the last ships he had into the moor without a plan. Yi poured over maps of inlets around the coast, taking particular note of shallow bays and straits. He also prepared his captains for battle. He had trained these men, yes, but they were still very green. Yi told them, quote, Don't act rash, be deliberate and calm, like a mountain, end quote. But the terrified Wan was neither calm nor deliberate. And when Yi didn't immediately jump to defend him, he sent messages to the capital complaining of Yi's cowardice. Yi, furious at having to defend his reputation against a man who had just destroyed his own ships, quickly grew to dislike Wan, finding the man to be a sycophantic drunk with no ability to lead. Nevertheless, Yi received orders from the king in exile instructing him to link up with Wan's fleet. Knowing Wan personally, it's likely that he left out how minuscule his own fleet actually was now. Putting their differences aside, the two commanders combined their forces and got to work. Reports had trickled in that the Japanese troops were looting a nearby peninsula and left their ships idle in the harbour. This was what Yi had been waiting for, a simple first assault to put spirit into his men and prove to them the Japanese were not immortal demons, only humans like them. A sailor was caught trying to sneak away the night before and Yi responded by publicly executing him. There was no room for cowardice in his men. Apart from Admiral Wan, I guess. The report turned out to be true. The Japanese troops were so preoccupied with looting and the sky so full of smoke that they didn't see the Korean ships until they closed into the harbour. When they finally realised what was happening, they ran for their muskets. Yi, who knew the fear these weapons caused in his men, ordered his sailors to, quote, stand like mountains, end quote. 
As usual, Guy was first in the fray, and his captains, loyal to him, followed obediently, trusting their admiral not to lead them astray. As the Koreans blasted the inland troops with their superior cannons, the muskets that had wrecked so much havoc on land simply bounced off the reinforced hulls of the Korean ships. It's easy to imagine the stoic admiral below the deck of his turtle ship, in the dim light, calming his sailors amongst the boom of cannons and the screams of men dying, all of which would have been completely new experiences for most. Be calm like a mountain. At the end of the engagement, 26 Japanese ships were sunk with no Korean vessels lost. Admiral Won Gyun had done nothing at all. He and his few ships lingered at the back while Yi and his navy did all the work. The Japanese fled into the hills, which troubled Yi as it meant the local population would be terrorized by them again soon. But he knew he could not follow them. The Japanese excelled at land warfare. His only chance of asserting dominance was on the sea. His crew had done it, their first real victory. He sent his battle report north to wherever the king was, and with it he included a Japanese musket which he advised the military to study. And if you thought Yi didn't notice the other admiral sitting idle, think again. His thoughts on the man were laid bare. Nothing is more shameful than a commander's loose discipline over his subordinates like this. I hope such conduct will be corrected by the court. Admiral Yi had inflicted the first setback on the Japanese robbers. However minor the victory was, it inspired others. There was still hope for Korea. But as usual, he didn't mince words. In his letters, he scolded the government war ministers for their lack of preparation and insisted that the way to defeat the invaders was over sea, where they were most vulnerable. If significant resources were diverted to his cause, he could inflict more serious blows like the one he had just dealt. All of this, of course, was true, but it rankled the fragile ego of the ministers. Who was this insubordinate upstart telling them how to do their jobs? He had won a single battle and now thinks himself like Sung Su? Over the next few weeks, Yi would win further engagements just like this one. Regarding Won Gyun as more of a hindrance than help, he instructed the admiral to find the wounded or dying Japanese and finish them off. This suited Won just fine. Out of danger and in possession of his precious trophy heads, he would send them north and claim credit for the kills. As the confidence of the Korean Navy grew slowly, the Japanese reached Seoul. Or, more appropriately, one of the daimyos raced ahead to Seoul. Each army wanted to be the first one to have the glory of conquering the capital. But once they got there, there wasn't much glory to be had. Its own citizens had nearly destroyed the ancient city. Blackened palaces and sickly vagabonds lined the streets. Most citizens had fled into the hills. However, Hideyoshi made his rules exceptionally clear the citizens of Seoul were not to be harmed unless they caused trouble. After all, according to his plan of a Japanese empire, these people were now his own citizens and under his protection. Meanwhile, the tattered royal retinue dragged themselves into Pyongyang, the modern-day capital of North Korea. The weather had not been kind to them either, and the king's retainers probably looked more like beggars, half-drowned in soaking and dirty silken robes. The one single piece of positive news that greeted them on their arrival was an influx of reports of a solitary admiral on the coast winning victory after victory against numerically superior invaders. And that is the end of part one of Admiral Yi Sun Sin, The Divine Wind. I assure you that this story is only just heating up, so tune in for our next episode where the unthinkable happens. Yi will be stripped of his command, demoted, and replaced by, you guessed it, Admiral Won Gyun. One of the most brilliant victories of all time is coming up, so make sure you're subscribed on whatever podcast platform you've tuned in on. This is Anthology of Heroes. 
Thanks for listening. A huge thank you to the show's Patreon supporters, Claudia, Tom, Malcolm, and Roll. A lot of people don't realize this, but this is a one-man show, so there's a big chunk of time that goes into research, writing, editing, and all that. I love sharing these stories, and it means a lot knowing you guys are enjoying them. Your contributions help me keep the lights on, sound libraries, web hosting, books, and all that. If you're not a patron already, we've got some really cool rewards, like having the option to read out some of the quotes we use in our episodes. If you want to go have a look, tap the link in our bio.